If you have a financial question this morning, actually, you can call this number 24-7, 888-6ADVICE. Again, that's 888-6ADVICE. You can also email those questions to your money at wealthenhancement.com. During the show, like right now, you can call or text our studio line. That number is 651-461-9226. Once again, here's Senior Vice President and Financial Advisor, Peg Webb. Good morning, Peg I can see Good that. Morning, Danny. I can see that we are without Bruce this morning. We actually are giving Bruce a well-deserved day off today, and it's a big, big deal because his daughter's getting married, and wow. so we said, you know what, take the weekend. Yeah, I should yeah, say so it's a big event. But um, what we're going to do today, and it's actually a very popular show, is ask Peg anything, and what that means is any kind of a financial question that you have. And we're going to start right out, the bo- right out of the box. And I decided to get some premium help today because lots and lots of questions come in. But Ryan McEwen, he actually runs our Mankato, Minnesota office. He's a senior vice president, financial advisor at Wealth Enhancement Group, has been with the company a very long time, but he leads the tax strategies group. Um, he's on the Wealth Enhancement Group's roundtable. This is a really neat thing. He's a long-standing member of the Ed Slot Master Elite IRA Advisor Group, which is a national group, one of the nation's largest leading organizations dedicated to advanced, um, advanced strategies for retirement and taxation. And then here's the fun things. Uh, Ryan's been an ad- adjunct uh, faculty member at Minnesota State University, Minis- uh, Mankato, and he's involved in so many nonprofits. He loves playing the drums. Um, I can go on and on about Ryan, but welcome, Ryan, to the show. I'm excited to be here. So what we'd like to do is um, we'd like everybody to right out of the gate. Now, a lot of times we'll talk about a topic for the first half an hour, and then we'll take questions after. Nope, today If you have a question, if you want to text it in, if you want to call 651-461-9226, we understand, uh, we get a lot of comments that the question part of the show is the most popular part of the show. So to lead this off, I'm actually just going to uh, read one of the email questions that we got um, earlier this week. And of course, it's tax season. So here's the question. I'm working on my taxes. Should I take that standard deduction or should I itemize, Ryan? Boy, that is a that's a tough question, and it's going to depend on your individual circumstances. So let's talk about what is the standard deduction and what does it mean to itemize your deductions. So right off the get go, the standard deduction is the deduction that the IRS gives everybody. Everybody gets. A, a standard deduction, no matter what your other circumstances are, and that is thirteen thousand eight hundred and fifty dollars for single filers, and twenty-seven thousand seven hundred dollars for married couples filing jointly for the year 2023. Those numbers go up every year a little bit for inflation, so for 2024 they're a little bit higher. So you get that thirteen thousand eight fifty standard deduction, or twenty-seven seven. Uh, depending on your filing status, single or married. And now what you have to do is compare that number to certain 
kinds of deductions that the IRS allows. So there are mortgage interest deductions. You can deduct state and local uh, taxes and property taxes up to a limit of $10,000 or charitable deductions and uh, medical as well. Uh, there are, there's quite a myriad of different deductions. You have to add all those items up. If they add up to more than that $13,850 or $27,700, you get to do what's called itemizing your your deductions for that year, being that you'll get the uh, you'll get the more if you've spent more on those particular items, you get more of a tax benefit. But no matter what, you always get that standard deduction. And you know, I guess the you know one important thing to note is there's some tax law changes that are taking place. Uh, back in 2018, the standard deduction nearly doubled, uh, and so now a lot more people take the standard deduction than they itemize uh, nowadays. But uh, in at the after 2025, it's going to get cut in half. So we'll have to pay attention and see if that is still the case. And I always tell people it's not always the greatest thing to itemize because that means you might pay might might be paying too much mortgage interest or paying too much in taxes or maybe you had a lot of medical bills. None of those are really ideal. Uh, to have, but if you've got them, you want to get a tax break for them. You know, the one really good thing on there would be charitable deductions or donations, because then at least you you get to choose what organizations that you get to benefit and do something special with your money. So that's it. That's standard deduction versus itemizing. Peg? Yeah, and what's interesting, Ryan, is um, the per high percentage of people that uh, use the standard deduction, like you mentioned, it it is doubled. Uh, the amount. But one of the uh, strategies that we use is called bunching. And so it's possible that you might use the standard deduction, let's say for a couple years, and then you might use the itemization uh, one year. And a big part of that is charitable deductions, which you mentioned are um, deductible as you itemize. Now, if you uh, give to charities each and every year, you might be better doing the standard because you don't get over that bogey, if you will, of what you can get for a standard deduction. But what some clients do is they uh, use the standard a couple of years and then they'll use the itemization because they, they uh, bunch their charity and give it all in one year versus giving it over three. So there are some additional tax strategies that you could talk to your CPA you know, or your advisor, uh, and and learn about this bunching. Denny, I'm wondering if anybody wants to uh, ask us a question yet. Absolutely. We're getting uh, some uh, text messages. By the way, let me toss out the number once again. Uh, you can ask uh, Peg and Ryan uh, your financial question this morning, 651-461-9226. Uh, here's the first one that came in. When I reach the age of required minimum withdrawal, will I be notified by my fund holders? Well, that's a good question, okay. Ryan. Yeah. Well, so so required minimum distribution, what is that? So that's if you have a tax-deferred retirement account like an IRA or a 401k, 403b, or any number of the alphabet soup, uh, you know, uh, retirement plans that we have out there today. Once you hit the age of 73, you have to start taking what's called a required minimum distribution. And so the, the texter is asking, is my fund company going to remind me of that? 
And I would say most fund companies do, uh, but oftentimes I find that it might be buried at the back of a statement, a little notification. Really, it's up to you uh, to take your required distribution and be aware of that, work with your advisor or your tax professional to make sure you're taking out the right amount. Now, there's a special provision that first year that you have a required distribution when you turn 73, you actually have a little bit of a leeway or a uh, breathing room being that you have until April 1st of the year following when you turn age 73 to take your first required distribution. Now that doesn't come without a catch. That catch is if you wait until April 1st of the follow year following when you turn age 73, you actually have to take two required distributions out that year. So it's good for you to be on top of that, but I would not count on your fund company uh, or our provider to give you that notice. And if it is, it might be hidden somewhere in, um, in uh, you know, some of the, the fine print and language that you might see. So, okay. Yeah, and what happens is um, you, if you forget, uh, what is the penalty? I know it used to be 50%. I think they're a little um, more lenient today, aren't they? They are. Uh, the SECURE Act actually changed the penalty for not taking it on a timely basis from 50% down to 25%. Now, that being said, if you do forget this, there is a process to ask for forgiveness from the IRS, uh, you, you have to just send a letter. You, first, you have to take the required distribution you missed as soon as possible. And then you write a letter to the IRS along with what's called Form 5329, asking for forgiveness uh, for, uh, 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 for not taking that distribution on time and essentially stating you're never going to do it again. Uh, it's kind of like... Uh, you know, if when you're when you're a little kid, you're like, oh, I'm taking, you know, uh, took 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 too many cookies out of the cookie jar. Oh, I'll never do that again, Mom. Never, never. So, uh, but most of the time, you know, they're pretty lenient on on those types of things, especially if you find that and make that correction as soon as possible. Denny. Again, uh, folks, uh, if they're just joining us, uh, right out of the gate, Peg and Ryan taking any financial question for, for you, from you, I should say, this morning. And we're getting a bunch uh, uh, this morning. Uh, here's another one. Is it a good strategy to convert existing IRAs into Roth IRAs? Uh, <clears throat> so one of the things that is very popular is if you have deferred a lot of your money in an IRA and you have a huge IOU to the IRS, uh, it might behoove you to do something which is called a Roth conversion. Uh, Ryan, do you want to walk through a couple of the steps that you would have to take for that? Oh, absolutely. So. So when you have a Roth conversion, effectively what you're doing is you're taking money from your tax-deferred retirement account, like an IRA or a 401k, and you're transferring it to your Roth IRA. The catch here is that you're paying tax on that amount that you convert when you take the money and go from the IRA or 401k to the Roth IRA in that given year. The good thing is, is once it's in the Roth IRA, it's tax-free forever. And there's all sorts of benefits for this. It reduce, it can reduce your future required minimum distributions. It can make sure that your beneficiaries that receive the, uh, uh, the ultimate payout, they get more tax-free money in their estate, and you get more tax-free money to use during your retirement. Now, 
how much to convert is really the big question. That's the million dollar question. And, and, you, and the, the trick is to not pay too much tax, or we, we call it soaking up your tax brackets, where you try to convert an amount that does not put you into a higher tax bracket. It's kind of like paying prices right. You want to you know, bring your income up to a certain level, but not go over so that you don't end up paying at a higher tax rate with the idea that later on you would be in a lower tax rate. And every person has a different target for this amount. Some people they look at staying out of a higher tax bracket. Some people look at converting amount that doesn't trigger additional Medicare premiums. I've even encouraged clients to think about what are their beneficiaries tax rates? What are their children's tax rates gonna be? Because if you, if, if the parents or you know, whoever is going to leave that IRA to someone, if they're in a lower tax bracket and those beneficiaries in a higher tax bracket, doing some conversions from IRA or 401k to Roth IRA might actually be beneficial. So it's not always about the account owner's brackets. It might be about the beneficiary's brackets too. Lots of things to consider. Okay. Yeah, yes, and and I'm glad you said that at the end because there is a lot of things to consider. And then I've done a lot of um, spreadsheets uh, showing clients that this is probably the best thing for you to do. And they'll look at me and say, are you asking me to pay more tax now than I really have to pay? I mean, everybody's so um, just caught up on, I, why would I give Uncle Sam another dollar today when I can just wait for the future? But Ryan, you mentioned a lot of good reasons of why you might do that, because it may not just be for yourself. It may be the legacy of those monies uh, long term. Denny? Yes, getting a bunch of uh, financial questions. We welcome yours for Peg and Ryan at uh, 651-461-9226. Dexter says this is the new maximum contribution to a Roth in 2024, now 8000 for those over 50. Well, that's really easy, Ryan, isn't it? Uh, the it, answer it is. is yes. Yeah, right? The answer is yes. 8000 Wow. I mean, do you remember when it was $2,000? Uh, so they, the IRS um, and the government is allowing us, thanks to inflation, putting more money into these plans uh, than ever. Um, so, Denny, that was easy one. Let's get to the next one. Okay. Is there, or rather the texter is saying, isn't there an additional deduction for those over 65 and disabled? Ryan? Okay. So what the, what the texter is asking is if you're age 65 or older um, or, or blind, not disabled, um, you get an additional standard deduction. So if you're single, so remember what we talked earlier in the show about the standard deduction. So for a single filer in 2023, it's 13,850. Now, if you're 65 or older or blind, uh, it's additional 1850 that you get uh, for 2023. And if you're a married couple, uh, the standard deduction is currently $27,700. But the, uh, uh, the married couple for each spouse that is age 65 or older, they get an additional $1,550. So for a married couple, you know, you've got a standard deduction of 30,000, uh, over $30,000 for the year. And remember, you got to go back and look to see if you've got more itemized deductions than your standard deduction to see if that's the right thing to do. Okay. Perfect. Perfect. Denny. 
Here's another one. Does having a pension from Para, and they also add Public Employees Retirement Association, cause your Social Security amount to be decreased? Ryan, I think what the I think what the texture is getting at does it does, does your pension income like P up public employee retirement, this could be any pension that you get or really any other retirement income. Uh, is it making more of your Social Security benefits taxable or is that income pushing your income over a threshold where your Medicare premiums are higher? And so the first question, you know, the first part of that is, you know, does it make your Social Security benefits more taxable? And in order to answer that question, you have to take one half of your Social Security benefits plus all of your other income. So that's retirement distributions, interest, dividends, if you have some rental income, whatever that might look like. And if that number adds up to be more than 25000 if you're filing single or $32,000 if you file, file jointly, every additional dollar of that other income is going to make more of your Social Security taxable on a proportional basis. It doesn't automatically make it all taxable. Uh, the other side of that is what if that pension income makes your Medicare premiums higher? And this is where you might get a cut in your Social Security check, because if your income is too high, your Medicare premiums go up, typically just for one year, if your income is only high for that one year. If it goes down uh, after that, then, then you could see your Medicare premium go back down uh, after that. But Medicare Part B premiums are withdrawn from your Social Security check. So I've had it many times in my career, I'm sure, Peg, you have as well, where a client's had too much income in one year, and then two years after, it doesn't happen right away. It's, uh, you know, people often forget that their income was higher two years before, then they get a notice saying that their Medicare premiums are going up. But even if you don't read that notice, then you just notice your Social Security check going down, and it really does feel like a cut in your Social Security benefits. Peg? Yes. Yes, it does. And then um, I get this question all the time, Ryan, is, um, you know, because it's a backdated two years, it's very difficult for clients to track. And then they all of a sudden on January 1st are, are there about get their Social Security statement of what they're going to get for, let's say, 2024. And all of a sudden there's a huge number that's being pulled out um, because of what you said the Medicare um, premiums um, based on your income. Now, is let's just say there's a, a one-time life event. Can you address that a little bit? Because I'm getting this question a lot. There's, a, there's some kind of form out there that you can send Social Security to say, hey, wait a minute, this was just one lifetime event. Can you uh, give me some reprieve, Ryan? Yeah, absolutely. So let's say that you're working, uh, let's say you're 65 and you're working and you have a good salary or maybe you got a, a large, uh, you know, payout on your vacation pay. And that number put your income over the threshold where your Medicare premiums would be higher. And for a married couple, that's about that's about two hundred thousand dollars right now. Uh, so uh, so if that happened in, in the year 2024, that means your 2026 premiums are going to be higher. But let's say you retired in 2025 and your income is no longer what it was in 2024. You've had a life-changing event, one of which is a stoppage of work or reduction in hours. Um, there are some other uh, 
there are some other exceptions too, but that is the primary uh, reason I see clients filing these appeals. That's what that's what you need to do is file an appeal with Social Security, who is the one that who is the one that, that does all the administration of these Medicare premiums coming out. And there is a form that you can fill out to uh, request this appeal, but I've had more success with clients actually calling Social Security to explain the situation, and then they will help walk through that process with the client. Whenever I've helped the clients fill out the form, uh, it's really confusing, like what year do you use for income, and when do you go down, when, you know, what, where do you fill out what, where, uh, you know, leave it to the IRS to have a confusing form, or Social Security, <laughs> I should say. Um, imagine yeah. that. Um, yeah, Denny, so, uh, Denny, let's um, yeah, let's end this uh, half an hour and get people lined up for the next half. Absolutely. Just ahead of our, our break, uh, please, uh, any financial questions for Peg and Ryan, 651-461-9226. You can call or text that number uh, right now, 651-461-9226. Back with more of your money. Stay with us. If you have a financial question, you can call this number 24-7, 888-6-ADVICE. You can also email those questions to your money at wealthenhancement.com. But right now, you can call. In fact, we urge you to do so. Call or text our studio line at 651-461-9226. Once again, here's Senior Vice President and Financial Advisor Peg Webb. Bruce is taking the day off today, but Peg, who did you bring with you? Well, I have a very special guest today, Ryan McEwen out of Mankato, Minnesota office with Wealth Enhancement Group. Um, He's actually a CPA and a CFP, a certified financial planner. He helps with tax strategies with our tax department and he helps our roundtable each and every day. I see comments from Ryan coming on our roundtable. And he's also part of the Ed Slot Master Elite IRA Advisory Program. It's actually a big uh, national organization that leads organizations to um, dedicate, you know, uh, to advanced retirement account taxation and all the things that go on with retiring. But um, Ryan has been with Wealth Enhancement Group for a long time. I, I, I want to say almost two decades now. And I call him, and maybe a lot of the listeners who have listened for a long time, the walking encyclopedia, because Ryan, you are just so knowledgeable about so many concepts and things that we do every day. And I want to thank you um, over the air for all the help that you've personally given me and and lots of the uh, team members at Wealth Enhancement Group. So I think what we do, Denny, is we just keep on taking these these questions. I feel like I'm kind of having a day off here. And so (laughs) thank you, Ryan, for helping but let's. I heard there's a lot of people um, that are waiting to ask a question. Denny? Yes, indeed. We do have a bunch. Uh, here's the next one. Can you describe the backdoor Roth IRA? Yes, that would be actually a, a good thing. We haven't talked about that lately, Ryan. Uh, but I actually do use this backdoor uh, IRA um, for my husband. So can you explain to the listeners? Sure, absolutely. So uh, what a backdoor Roth IRA uh, uh, is, it's not a particular kind of an account. It's actually a strategy where you can convert assets to a Roth IRA uh, 
by first making a contribution to a traditional IRA, which is non-deductible. And ordinarily, when you convert from an IRA to a Roth IRA, it is taxable. But with a backdoor Roth IRA strategy, because you're just converting your IRA non-deductible basis, all you're converting is non-deductible or after-tax dollars to the Roth IRA, which is not taxable. Now, who uses this strategy and what are some of the catches? There are some catches with everything, of course. So who uses this strategy? First, it's who it's anyone who has income that's too high to make a normal Roth IRA contribution. And so for 2023, if you are married, your your ability to make okay. a direct Roth contribution starts to phase out at $218,000. And if it's single, that's at $138,000. So if you're above those income limits, what a lot of people will do is make non-deductible contributions to an IRA. And then here's the catch. If you do not have any other traditional IRA, SEP IRA, or simple IRA accounts, uh, then you can convert that IRA contribution to your Roth IRA with no taxes. So it's, a, it's an indirect way of making, if your income is too high to make those Roth contributions. Now, if you do have an IRA or a SEP IRA or simple IRA and you do this strategy, what happens is a proportional amount of that conversion ends up being taxable to the extent that your non-deductible contributions uh, uh, relative to your entire IRA balances. So for a lot of people, that can mean paying a lot of unintended taxes on that. Now, if you do have a lot of IRA SEP or simple IRAs, uh, one of the ways to uh, you know help yourself become more eligible for a strategy like this is if your 401k plan allows, you can actually roll those IRA or SEP or simple IRA strategy. Uh, simple IRA accounts to the 401k, and then you don't have any other IRA accounts, and then that would make it a lot cleaner to do. But that's a strategy that may not make the best sense from an investment perspective, because what if the what if the investments in the 401k may not be as flexible as your IRA? You really have to look at at the aggregate, and as you know, with the answers to many of these questions, it depends, right, Peg? Yeah, yeah. The the um the the example I can give is uh, so my husband uh, had he was self employed and so in his plan he would put in some deferred contributions uh, with his four hundred one k at his company. Then when he uh, sold that business and no longer had it, he then this is a long time ago converted that uh, taxable IRA to a Roth right then and there. And then since then, uh, he is eligible, because all he has is Roth, to be able to open, to contribute to this non-deductible every year and then immediately convert it. Now, um, yes, we do a joint return, um, but it's okay because there's an, it's unlimited uh, income that you can have to be able to contribute to a non-deductible. Um, and so he qualifies, but I do not. I do not because I'm still fully um, gainfully employed. You know, I have my 401k, but I also have my own IRAs. So it wouldn't make sense for me to do a non-deductible. Now, I still have clients, Ryan, 
who add their non-deductibles, and even though they're in high tax brackets, when we look at the odds of them taking a distribution anytime soon, it still made sense for them. Now, that's a very small percentage of people, but um, it still made sense for them to contribute over time. Denny? Yes, indeed. Let's uh, remind our listeners, you can phone in your financial question as well as send a text, 651 461 9226. Speaking of phones, Mark is on the phone to ask you a question. Now, Mark, go ahead with your question for Peg and Ryan. Oh, good morning there. Um, my father passed away here back in September, and my mom now is going to be selling her house in Minneapolis. Um, she has over 200000 in some different bonds and different things. Um, but the house will be going for a good 300000 and she really wants to make sure that she's able to gift me, you know, something at the end. Um, what should she do with that three hundred? Um, someone, actually a financial advisor, mentioned to me that we should maybe throw it in a savings account under my name with her as beneficiary. So there's when it comes like a five-year look back or something. Um or do you have any other ideas? Or yeah, thank you, thank you, Mark, for calling and asking that somewhat complicated question. Um, I think Ryan, what we do here is we um, just talk about the various types of assets owned, and then um, the concept of you know, do you gift away your money today versus uh, in hopes that maybe you won't have to. Uh, spend down that money um, on nursing home care or long-term care. Ryan? Yeah, this is definitely a situation that I see a lot of people facing because I think there's an intent of of parents and grandparents wanting to leave uh, a legacy or an inheritance to their family, and they don't want to see their hard-earned money, whether it comes from a house or, or from a savings account, to uh, you know, to to all be used up for for long term care expenses, and sometimes it's just inevitable, um, you know, because uh, uh, for one circumstance or another. But what Mark is really, get, you know, Mark Mark is asking is, should his mom take some of these funds, this two hundred thousand dollars in bonds, and perhaps uh, uh, the proceeds from the sale of her house, and gift it to Mark? Um, and so. Uh, and there's some catches with that because uh, if she gifts it to Mark, if she needs to, uh, you know, have any money for nursing home expenses within the next five years, assuming she doesn't have any other assets, uh, you can have up to three thousand dollars of assets and qualify for something called medical assistance, and that can help pay for for nursing home costs. Uh, if it's within that five-year period of time. Mark might have to pay some of that money back. It's called a clawback to to help pay for her mom's medical expenses or his mom's medical expenses. Once the five years has passed, it's completely, uh, you know, free and clear from any of those clawback provisions. Uh, And they do that just so that people just don't give away money right before they go into a nursing home. And there are other ways that you can spend on money, like buying a car and and some other eligible expenses. But uh, uh, but I do see this happen. And, and the catch for Mark's mom is this is her 
your money. I, I, I see. I, I have this conversation with clients where, well, you know, you don't have control over that money anymore. You're completely, you know, you know, you've got to completely trust your 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 child. And what if that child runs into some legal issues? Now that money is in their name. That could be up, you know, that could be caught up in a lawsuit. Uh, you know, if they're in a car accident or other bad things that happen to good people sometimes. And and uh, and what if you need money for some reason? You've got to ensure that, uh, you know, that child is going to actually give you the money back. There's no legal requirement for them to do that. So you've got to be there's a lot of catches with that strategy. And uh, uh, you've got to be really careful about that. And you may want to talk to an elder law attorney. Uh, sometimes I think a trust actually might be a better uh, route to go because there are certain provisions that can provide protections uh, accomplishing the client's goal while avoiding some of those other conflicts that can sometimes come up. Okay? Yeah, and one other thing is it's very, very difficult, if almost impossible, if the assets are in IRAs, like tax-deferred accounts. Um, that's very difficult to say, oh, I'm going to gift this to Mark, but you can't gift IRAs without paying immediate tax. Um, so I love what you said, Ryan, <clears throat> you know, contacting an elder law attorney is normally what I do is because it can be complex. Denny? Yeah, another another text uh, says this. When is it is it good to make a charitable contribution using my traditional IRA? <clears throat> Uh, well, when we talk about a traditional IRA, that just means that it's a bucket of money that is still has is going to be taxed. So if you're going to give to charity, um, you can't necessarily gift IRA proceeds and get rid of get you know get out of paying the tax, Ryan. So uh, you're right, Peg. You know, so if you just take a distribution from an IRA and then you give it away to charity. Um, uh, you can take a deduction for that amount, but you have to itemize your deductions in order to get a tax benefit for it. And you really only get a tax benefit for it if you exceed the standard deduction. So oftentimes the, uh, the income generated from the IRA distribution doesn't get offset by that charitable deduction. Now, there's this great provision that people are eligible for with traditional IRA assets once they're age 70 and a half called a qualified charitable distribution. And if you're over age 70 and a half and you are listening and you have an IRA, make sure to pay attention because this is one of the best provisions in the tax code. Uh, it allows you to take up to 100000 and change. Uh, they just started uh, increasing that for inflation every year uh, uh, and allows you to have direct distributions to charity. The check can't be payable to you. It has to be paid to a charity or charities. Um, and then the, the distribution is gets to be excluded from tax. And so that's actually better than a tax deduction because if you're trying to itemize your deductions, you only get a benefit if you exceed the standard deduction, which is more than $30,000 for a person that's age 70 and a half. If you do a qualified charitable distribution from your IRA, having those checks payable directly to the charity instead of yourself, you get to exclude every dollar. You get a benefit on every single dollar. And this is like one of those uh, infomercials where I'm going to say, wait, there's more. And uh, <laughs> yeah. at age 73, when you have to start taking required minimum distributions, 
these qualified charitable distributions can actually help offset your required distribution. So if my required distribution was $20,000 for the year, let's say, and I had $10,000 of that required distribution payable to charity via a qualified charitable distribution, I only have to take $10,000, uh, the difference between the $20,000 required distribution and the $10,000 to charity, and pay tax on that myself. It's really slick. It helps you avoid tax on the distribution. But again, wait, there's more. It can also help reduce the taxation on your Social Security benefits, and it can help you avoid unexpected increases in your Medicare premiums, the IRMA or the, the income-related Medicare adjustment. So, so many great ways uh, to, uh, to give money from an IRA to charity, but usually but only if you're age 70 and a half or older. Prior to age 70 and a half, it's, it's not, it, it would most likely not be a great idea. Peg? Yes, and and one of the reasons that it's such a great ripple effect is that that it almost disappears right on the front page of your tax return. So lots of things are being calculated by that front page of how much you pay. So thanks, Ryan, for bringing all of that up because uh, we utilize that strategy with our clients each and every day if they're uh, 73 and older for sure, and 70 and a half if it's appropriate for them. Denny. A texter says this, recently graduated daughter with a technology job. Should she pay college loans as fast as possible or max out Roth IRA or both? Yeah, that's um, it would be interesting to know, Ryan, what the college uh, interest is uh, for the loans. But uh, can you comment? Well, so. I would think about this from when I get this question. Uh, oftentimes, it's parents asking questions on behalf of their of their kids, and then I end up just having a phone call with the kids to just hear more from them because uh, uh, you know they're grown up, they've got their jobs now, they need to make some of these decisions. Uh, yes, if the interest rate first, look at the interest rate. If the interest rate is relatively low, uh, I just had a client. Uh, 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 not too long ago, where their interest rate was 3% on their student loans. And right now, you can get over, you know, close to 5% in money markets and the online savings accounts right now. I'm thinking, don't pay down those, stu those student loan interests, uh, student loans too quickly, because you can make more on a savings account than you can on the interest, taking advantage of that difference. The other thing I think about is liquidity. Uh, you know, should, you know, once you pay down the student loan, you can't get that money back. And so for a lot of students just graduating from college, I don't necessarily see them have these huge emergency savings funds uh, set up yet. And the, the, text, the, the texture was asking, should they make a Roth contribution? Well, for a younger person, I kind of view a Roth IRA contribution, even though it should be used for retirement long-term, it's kind of a quasi-emergency fund because you can always pull out your contributions from your Roth IRA at any age without any taxes. And so I would be very hesitant for that student, that recently graduated student to pay down their student loan interest if they didn't have a good emergency fund set up or even making contributions to their Roth IRA. I'd, I'd probably lean more towards the Roth IRA contributions just so there is money accessible in case some, an emergency came up. But at the same time, hopefully their interest, interest is uh, low enough to where long-term the returns on that investment in their Roth IRA or whatever else they do with that money would be much greater. Okay. 
Danny, can we squeeze one more in? I think we can. A couple of minutes to go in the show. Uh, Texter says, how is a Roth IRA looked at by medical assistance? Ryan? Oh, a Roth IRA, uh, you know, is an asset that you own. And for medical assistance purposes, they look at all of your assets. And so, uh, so a Roth IRA, traditional IRA savings, all of those assets are definitely included for medical assistance, uh, you know, if you're trying to apply for aid to, for a nursing home or, or some other type of benefit. Okay. okay. Then you, yeah, then, then what we, you would want to do is just um, select maybe what assets you would use for medical assistance if, if needed versus, you know, using the Roth. Denny? I think we have time for, for one uh, more quick one. Uh, the listener wants to know, do I need to take an RMD from each of my accounts if I have multiple accounts that require an RMD? That's a good one, Ryan. Oh, boy. Wow. Our, our last one, and that's a, I, I'm excited to answer this last question because I know the answer, but it's, it's always more complicated than it seems. So when you, when you have a required distribution when you're age 73, and let's say you have, you know, you have multiple accounts. You have IRAs and you have 401ks, 403bs. So if you have 10 IRAs, you have to calculate the required distribution for each of those IRAs. But you can take the required distribution from those 10 IRAs from any one of the IRAs. You can take it all from just one if you want to. But with 401ks and 403bs, with a 401k, each 401k account has their own required distributions. You have to take one from each account. If you have 10 401ks, you get to take 10 RMDs from 10 401k accounts. From 403bs, you can actually aggregate those RMDs just like you can from IRAs. If you have 10 403b accounts, you can take it just from one 403b account. Simple as that. <laughs> Thank you, Ryan. I, I don't have anything to add to that, Danny. Well, I tell you what, we uh, I apologize. We didn't get all of the questions. There were so many. We, we can try this another time. But keep in mind, you can also, and by the way, it was great to hear both you and uh, and Ryan this morning. Great show. Thank, thank you very much. Uh, but if you do have a financial question, maybe you want to send your email questions, you can do that to your money at wealthenhancement.com. But keep in mind, there's a toll-free number you can call 24-7. That number is 888 888- Six advice. Yeah, 24-7. You think of something midweek, you can call Wealth Enhancement at 888-6-ADVICE. But keep in mind, if we missed your text or calls today, you can also always email those questions to your money at wealthenhancement.com. We do hope you join us again next week with more of your money. 